We've got two Bible readings today. The Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 92, verses 1 to 7. And if you've got a church Bible today, um, it can be found on page 481. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp, For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. That though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. And the New Testament reading comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to chapter 12 to verse 2. And this can be found on page 920 of the Church Bible. O the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Verse 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He ends the reading. Thanks. Yes. Thank you. Well, good morning, Cornerstone, Homebush Bay. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Um, I'm Dan, if you haven't met me yet, I'm uh, the minister here at this wonderful congregation. If you're new here today, uh, welcome uh, to you. Uh, I, I met Steph earlier. Welcome. I hope you have an encouraging time with us this morning. How about I begin, if you keep your Bibles open, with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us through your word and pressed into us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so now, Father, may the words that come out of my mouth uh, be uh, acceptable in your sight, along with the meditations of all of our hearts, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Warning. Uh, Satire lies ahead. But in the Babylon Bee, your trusted online source for Christian news satire... John Brogman, who has attended Wabash Presbyterian Church his whole life, was quite shocked to find himself surrounded by hand-clapping hyper-charismatics during a visit to Main Street Christian Church in Eckhart on Sunday. Brogman, who reluctantly attended the church while visiting his cousin, was stunned to discover a worship leader leading the congregation in a rendition of Phil Wickham's This Is Amazing Grace. Despite the aggressive tone of the song, Brogman managed to sing along until the individuals around him began clapping semi-rhythmically to the song. 
You could have knocked me over with a feather, a troubled Brogman recounted to reporters. Everyone was doing it. Men, women, kids. I didn't know it, but apparently my cousin Franklin is a far-gone charismatic wacko. Of course, I slipped out during the pre-sermon worship. Brogman says, while the church members were friendly, he knows a slippery slope when he sees one. Hand clapping? What's next? A fire tunnel or gold dust from the ventilation ducts? A church that claps hands on Sunday burns hymnals on a Monday, he added. Now, that's just a funny, provocative piece of satire um, poking fun at Presbyterians. Uh, Presbyterians, as is known by the Christian subculture, are seen as rigid, intellectual, fundamental fuddy-duddies when it comes to worship. But the joke can actually be had on the other side too, can't it? Uh, Up on the screen here is a well-known bit of church humor, which I'm sure some of you might have seen. It's official worship signals. So according to this chart, we're probably all rookies. And, uh, and, and the more you get into worship, then the more expert you become. Just check out those drastic hand signals. What are you? Dueling light bulbs? Are you a pointer hatchet? Perhaps a village people? Or maybe even Rocky? Right like that. All right. You see, friends, if you're new to church, let me tell you, you not knowing about all this is probably a really good thing. But for the rest of us, I just realize that there is a thick subculture in Christianity where the term worship comes with all sorts of connotations. It all comes with associations of what you do on a Sunday. It's associations with singing or how often we think things like, you know, here comes the worship part of the service. Uh, in fact, in my previous church, I've, had, I've in fact had people come up to me and tell me, I love it here at this church, Dan. And when I ask why, they say, because I love the worship. I love the worship. And for others, you know, it's worship is just tied up to the whole reverence of the whole thing, you know? The quiet, the somber, the reflective, the meditative space You're in worship now. See? Is that what worship is all about? Is that all that there is to know about worship? Now, each week, friends, we've been looking at uh, one of the core values of Cornerstone's mission. And that mission is to reach out, make disciples, and to build a biblical community to the glory of God. And each week we've been looking at one aspect of that vision. We've looked at servant-heartedness. We've looked at discipleship. We looked at missions last week. But today's core value is passionate worship. Passionate worship. And on the surface, it seems that it's not really in our mission statement at all. But it is. If you take a look at the last part of that mission where it says, to the glory of God. In other words, if I can put it this way, the core activities of the church that we do as a church, these activities are not ends in themselves. They're not ends in themselves. They don't exist, in other words, for their own sake. You know, reaching out, making disciples, 
building a biblical community, they are not ends in and of themselves, but they lead to an end. They lead to an end. And the end is this, that the glory of God, his name, his supremacy, may abound and resound over this whole universe that he's made. In fact, you might even argue that this value here, core value, passionate worship, is the most important one of all. Because it is the most final and the most future eternal reality of this universe. Uh, John Piper wrote a book several years ago called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in it, he has a famous line which says this, Mission exists, he says, because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not even missions. Because God is ultimate and not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. You see, there's a sense, right, in which all the ministry that Cornerstone does All the reach-outs, all the events, all the initiatives and structures, all these things, friends, do you realize they all have expiry dates to them? They all expire. 10,000 years into the future, would your connect group be around? Would CY be around? Or even your wonderful morning teas, will they be around, as wonderful as they are? But worship will. Passionate worship will. So let me ask you, friends, how important is it to get this right? How important is it that we don't let a concept like worship be hijacked by the Christian subculture and actually think biblically about this? Well, here in this text, as Bora has read, we see Paul model and we see Paul instruct. He models and instructs believers on a life of passionate Worship, a life of passionate worship, which you and I need to know if Cornerstone Homebush Bay is to have passionate worship as well. So three things that this passage, this passage tells us about what passionate worship is. Passionate worship is full of three things. It's full of wonder, it's full of surrender, and it's about a remember. Wonder, surrender, remember are the three words that I'm going to use here. First point is this, that passionate worship is full of wonder. See, now usually, right, if you're familiar at all with the book of Romans, then you begin this section at the reading of chapter 12, verse 1, wouldn't you? If you just naturally think about this part of the Bible, it's a well-known passage to a lot of us who have been Christian for a long time. But I'm glad, I'm glad that we're starting at chapter 11, verse 33. And I'll tell you why. Paul had just gone on for two whole chapters, from chapters 9 to chapters 11, about the important issue in his day. And I'm not going to get into the whole nitty-gritty of it too much, but just enough to say this, that the big problem that Paul had was how God could make good on his promises to Israel when Israel had failed to believe in Jesus. That's what those two chapters are about. The big problem there was how God could make good to his promises to Israel when Israel had rejected Jesus. 
The whole letter to the Romans was written at a time when the non-Jews, Gentiles, those like us who were coming into the church in Rome at droves and Paul had a big problem to tackle. What about Israel who were always God's people? And Paul spends two whole chapters on giving us a picture of God's absolute sovereignty. He spends two whole chapters telling us about God's absolute sovereignty. And he says, in effect, and his reasoning is kind of goes like this. So what? So what about it? Who are you to answer God? What if all this was part of God's plan to bring you Gentiles in by the hardening of Israel's heart? God will show mercy on whom he shows mercy. God will show compassion on whom he will show compassion. But what if, by having you come into saving faith, Israel is provoked to jealousy in a way that they would come back in? See, God still loves his people. Israel, that hasn't changed. And together with you, the fullness of his people will be saved. That's what he's saying. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. At his most basic You are where you are by nothing else than God's sovereign choice. You are where you are by nothing else than by God's sovereign choice. You know, you're not here because you are someone who writes your own history, but because God is writing your history and is writing you into it. You may not understand why he is is like that, You may not understand all the twists and turns to get there. But these things happen for your advantage so that you would understand the one true God of mercy and bow down in worship. Uh, Winston Churchill, who was the great, you know, British prime minister, was once asked by a journalist, Winston Churchill, he asked, do you think... Years down the track, after you've gone, history is going to look upon you kindly? That's what the journalist asked. And Churchill replied famously, Yes, because I intend to write it. History is written by the winners, you know, we often say, don't we? But don't you realize that, you know, no one can actually make a claim like that? Not even as someone as great as Churchill, but God can. And he's written you into his story. And that's what leads Paul to conclude this section where we first began our reading. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. How untraceable his ways. Isn't it interesting, friends, right? By the end of all that explaining, chapters 9 to chapters 11, Paul doesn't end up saying, all right, here's the summary dot point, dot point, dot point. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say at the end of all his explaining, do you get it now? Has it gotten into your head? Does it make sense to you now? No. Paul is on the edge of where his own Greek language could take him to describe the wonders of God. Paul is being filled with wonder, in other words. At the depths of the riches, of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who's known the mind of the Lord, he says. In other words, whose knowledge is comparable to his? Who's been his counselor, Paul says. In other words, whose wisdom is comparable to God's? Who's ever given uh, to God that God should repay him? 
In other words, who is it that God owes? Who is it that God owes? What, what, the, the cattle on a thousand hills is mine, God says. Do you have something that God doesn't have? You see, this language, right, and if you look at it carefully, you might have even started thinking, this language is pretty reminiscent of another place in the Bible. Do you know where it is? It's in the book of Job. Do you guys remember Job in the Bible? You know, Job was a man who had absolutely everything he could want in life. He had wealth, he had family, he had status, and it all got blown away one day without so much of an explanation. Job was a righteous man, and all of this happened. His house literally came crumbling down. There he is sitting on the dust, scraping himself with bot bits of pottery, and his miserable friends come to him, and his miserable friends with their bad theology, they come in and they say, you know, oh, Job, all this happened, you know why? Because, you know, you've just done something bad. Just end it all and confess to God. You know, God knows that you're a dirty sinner. And Job says, do you remember what Job says? He says, I can't, Job says. I did nothing wrong. And 35 odd chapters, he puts up with the bad theology of his friends. Complaining, full of poetry, rhetorical stuff. And then he gets to the end of the book. Do you remember that? At the end of Job's book in chapter 38 or something. Finally, God shows up in the whirlwind. God shows up in the cloud. If you remember, Job 38, God says, out of the cloud, Job, can you make a snowflake? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Hmm? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Do you know the, the, the roots and, and migration patterns of all the animals? Do you know the cycle of the water cycle? Did you make the, pla the planets? Did you make the sea monsters of the sea? Stand up, Job. Come on, be a man. Stand up. Answer me. And then Job says, oh, okay, well, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. And then God says, no, I, you're not getting away that easy. I've got a couple more questions to get. Stands him up again. Asks him a whole bunch of rhetorical questions. And then at the end, Job finally says, I repent. And I cover my mouth with my hands. Surely I spoke of things that were too wonderful to know, too marvelous to know. Listen, friends, when you get to the point where your attitude is like that, then you've begun to experience true worship. True worship is when you're filled with the wonder of God, just like Paul was filled with the wonder of God, even if you don't know all the answers. I remember when I was at my previous church, I had a couple friends of ours who'd been struggling for many years to have a child, but they couldn't. They saw all the right doctors, they took all the right treatments, but they couldn't conceive for a very long time. And uh, when they eventually did, it was quietly exciting, of course, and they just started to tell people. But before the baby could pass the first trimester, they suffered a miscarriage. And that was that. I remember being at church a few short weeks after that happened. 
And I'm usually standing uh, at the front, sitting at the front there. Pastors often do that. It's not the best place to, to stand because you can't see anyone else behind you. You can only see the musos. But I remember on that one Sunday, during the singing time, and I looked across, and standing there on the other side was that sister in Christ, lifting her eyes to God and singing her heart out. And I was choked to tears. The song just happened to be all creatures of our God and King. He shall return in power to reign. Heaven and earth will join to say, Oh, praise him. Alleluia. Then who shall fall on bended knee? All creatures of our God and King. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. 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 Now listen, friends. Don't you tell me that worship is just about singing on a Sunday. <laughs> Someone else could be singing that exact same song without an ounce of worship in them. <laughs> it wasn't the singing, but it was how she could sing of the wonders of God, the mercies of God, even when nothing around her could make much sense. Can you do that? Is your heart filled with wonder? Do you come away from the mysteries, yeah, even the tragedies of life, doxologically? Or are you someone who, you know, just, you just got to feel the urge to just question God, get bitter against God? You know, it's all, it's all got to make sense to me. Why, 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 God, why doesn't this make sense to me, God? You know, why? I'm so angry with you, God. Are you someone like that? Because let me tell you, once your heart sinks into the awe and wonder of who God is, you'll begin to be lifted towards passionate worship. It's true. Firstly, then, passionate worship is full of wonder. But secondly, passionate worship is a surrender. It's a surrender. You see it there in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, and he's referring to everything he's talked about so far, including and not least chapters 9 to 11. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, offer up your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You know, Paul's been just full of praise and wonder before. We saw that just now. So why would he talk about worship here? Why, why would he talk about true and proper worship here? Well, here? I'll tell you why. You see, here's the thing to get across. All throughout this letter, Paul has been on about the gospel. He's defending the gospel. He's confirming the gospel. But the backdrop against which the gospel is in fact good news is the big problem of the human heart. Now over in Romans 1, we see the problem of the human heart. In chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, we see the world is coming under the judgment of God against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And, and what is it that that's a core of that wickedness? If you flick over to Romans 1, verse 25 tells us, Romans 1, 25, in the sinfulness of their hearts, we're told, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things. You get that? They worshipped created things rather than worshipping the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. 
You see, modern people, right, and you might actually be one of these, you often see this world as made up of worshippers here and non-worshippers here. You're either a religious person or a non-religious person. You're either a person of faith or you're not a person of faith. But Romans 1 is telling you no. This world is not made up of worshippers here and non-worshippers here. It's telling us that each and every one of us are worshippers. We are all worshippers. All of us worship. All of us either worshipping someone or something. For what you worship is what you ascribe to as the ultimate worth. I mean, that's where the word worship comes from. It's worth-ship. And the big problem of the human heart is to reject the God who made us and instead look towards other things, things that he's created. So we look to these things that he's created and we look at these things to get our ultimate meaning and satisfaction. In our sinful nature, we we worship our, our wealth, we worship our careers, we worship our romantic relationships. Is that you? We worship our social reputation, we worship family. Look, we even worship worship. But here's what Paul is saying. Those who have been brought over from death to life by the good news of Jesus are those who have surrendered all of these things. We no longer are those who worship created things. We don't, we don't look at the created things and go, yeah, that's where, we get our, that's where we get our ultimate meaning and satisfaction. But we worship the creator who made us and who loves us in his son. So you can look at the things of this world. You can look at the created things of this world and you can see them for what they really are. They are good things. Nothing wrong with wealth. Nothing wrong with family. Nothing wrong with the jobs and the good work. They are good things. But they are not God things. They are good things. But they are not God things. For we are wholesale from top to bottom, given to God who's redeemed us from our sin. And the way that Paul describes it, is by calling us a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now friends, think about that for a second. A living sacrifice. It sounds kind of contradictory, doesn't it? I mean, how can a sacrifice be living? I mean, once you've sacrificed something, you've killed it, haven't you? But ah, there's the point. In Jesus, you've died to your sin. You've died to your self-righteousness. You've put it to death. So that's no longer a part of me. Now my whole life is truly given to God, together with his people, so that you love him with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. In other words, worship is a surrender of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, in the love and service of God. And in this text alone, we, today we, we see all three, don't we? We see the surrender of the heart. We saw that in chapter 11. A heart that springs forth praise from the inner depths about the beauty and power of God. And if that's true, practical time, let me ask you then, what are you doing to cultivate that kind of a heart? What is it that captures your wonder? What is it that you're floored by? How can you recapture this awe? Well, where where it starts with Paul is that it starts with the praise and wonder of God. Even when life doesn't make much sense, he looks at the promises of God, the unfailing love of God. How can you be cultivating that each day, every day throughout the week? 
What are you examining in uh, your life? The things that you see around you, the things that are captivating your awe greater than Jesus. It happens. Do you identify those times? Do you know what those things are? Are your eyes open? Are your ra- is your radar on? It's a surrender of the heart, but it's also a surrender of the mind. Look at verse 2 with me. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, worship is to be in awe and wonder, but you know it's not anti-intellectual. It requires a daily renewal of the mind, being filled with God's word, being fed with God's word. I was, uh, I was doing a photo shoot for an engaged couple, which I still do from time to time. And uh, the guy was one of the better shaped grooms to be, all right? Uh, looked pretty shredded. So I asked what his secret was. What are you, what's your secret? What's your regiment? And he said, it's no secret. But a while ago, I went on a ketogenic diet. Do you guys know what a ketogenic diet is? And I asked, what on earth was that? And so he explained it. A ketogenic diet is when you cut carbs out almost completely. Because see, what happens, right, is when you eat a bit of carb, your body digests uh, that carb into glucose. And that glucose is absorbed into your bloodstream, which obviously spikes up the sugar level in your blood. And when that happens, the pancreas is triggered to release insulin into the blood. And one of the effects of that, of course, is that your liver and other parts of your body begin storing fat. That's why you get fat. And so he says, it's all about what you eat, right? If you cut carbs out, you begin shifting the equilibrium over to the other side. Now, one day, friends, I might take him up on that. To my wife's absolute joy, no doubt. But if watching what goes into our stomachs is so important, then what Paul says, what goes into your mind is utmost important. You won't be living the life of passionate worship if your mind is constantly taking in junk. So let me ask you, what is it that you're filling your minds with in the moments of your deepest solitude when no one else is watching you? What is it that you're filling your minds? Is it helpful? Is it loving? Is it, as Paul says in Philippians 4.8, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy? Think about such things, Paul says. So, are you filling your minds with such things? And if not, why not? Are there ways that your connect group this week could help you in that? Or your spouse? your wife or your husband, would you give permission for a a close number of people in your church family to say, you know, what? how's your thought life going this week? What are the kinds of things that you're watching on Netflix? Clicked on the internet, read in the paper, you know? You don't have to come across judgmentally. You just got to ask the simple question. Give yourself permission for others to ask that of you. How are you renewing your mind? It's a surrender of the heart, it's a surrender of the mind, but it's also a surrender of the hands. The hands. Now, do you notice something here? To present a sacrifice in the Old Testament, 
It was a it was a role that was reserved in the Old Testament for the priests of Israel. You guys know that. The priests were, the, were those uh, who offered the sacrifice, but in offering the sacrifice, they were ministering to the people corporately. And so when Paul says, right, I urge you brothers and sisters to offer your bodies, you know, the your there is plural, your bodies, what's that saying? It's saying that for us Christians in the New Testament, we are all priests, we are all set apart to minister and serve one another. And especially when we gather as God's people, we gather to serve. You see, a lot of well-meaning, well-meaning Christians say something like this often, that worship is just your individual engagement with God, your individual vertical engagement with God. And of course, that's right. But if you take Paul's language seriously here, it can't just be your, be your private engagement with God because worship is also a corporate activity. But what tends to happen, right, is that when we play this down, we say things like, worship is between me and God. And people who say that hardly understand anything about worship or God. Because you know, they, they'll be absolutely mind-blown in the new heavens and the new earth as well. You know, right, what do you see in the final picture? You see tribes and nations and crowds gathering from every tongue and tribe, worshipping God for all eternity. Right, you have someone here, right? If, you, if, if all you're thinking, right, is that worship is just your personal engagement with God, heaven is going to be an absolute mind-blown reality. They'll be looking around going, oh man, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of nations here. You see, because worship, right, is a corporate activity which feeds into your private worship and which private worship feeds back into your corporate worship. They both feed into each other. And friends, if that is true, listen, how you think about a Sunday when you're gathered together is supremely important. Sunday church is not just a hangout. It's not just a Starbo event. You know what a Starbo event is? Subject to a better offer, you know, that you'll see me at church unless I have something better to go do, like a footy game or a party, or to finish my assignment. No. Church is not a low-life hangout. It is the highest privilege. It is the greatest witness to the future reality that you will share in here locally, week to week, and therefore you should just block it out for the rest of your day. I mean that. Block, set the day apart. Meet with God's people here. And then after this formal time is over, serve and meet with your church family elsewhere. Enjoy and refresh each other in the knowledge and love of God. Ask how you're going. Swap stories. Share how you can be prayed for during the week. Or go out in pairs, guys. In the, on Sunday afternoon, talk to people in the community. But make time to love and to serve God. Here's one takeaway suggestion, right? Why don't you consider coming early on Sundays to do that? Set the alarm clock. Come at 9.30. That's when we say we're open. I'll tell you what, after this morning time, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. After morning tea is over, I'm going to have lunch with Scott and Josie right here. I don't even know where we're going. Do you know where we're going? We don't even know where we don't even know where we're going. But we, all we want to know is that we just want to have lunch together because they've been here regularly, and I haven't met them much. And I would love to get to know them. That's why I'm having lunch with Scott and Josie. And afterwards, I'm going to sit in a cafe just by myself, 
because I'm an introvert. Hard to believe, but I'm an introvert. I'm going to sit in a, I'm going to get my introversion on in a cafe and I want anyone else to talk to me for a couple of hours. And then tonight, we're having Karen Stellan over for dinner. In fact, she's actually bringing dinner to our house. How good is she? And the reason she's doing that and the reason why I asked her over is because I met her two beautiful children the weeks earlier and I want to find out what kind of great mum they have. I want to get to know Karen better, you see? So you guys can do that as well. I'm not talking about having Karen over. I'm talking about you guys can all do that as well to each other. See, block out Sundays as much as you're able to. See, worship is a surrender of the heart. It's a surrender of your mind. It's a surrender of your strength in the love and service of God. Worship is about our surrender. But lastly, friends, worship is about a remember. It's about remembering something. Okay, now what do I mean by that? All right, now right now, you're probably sitting here, you've listened so far, and you might be thinking, Pastor Dan, now far out. If that's what passionate worship is, it's about a wonder, it's about a surrender. Well, I don't have any of that. You know, I, I, I have no wonder, and I surrender very little. You know, uh, um, D.L. Moody used to, used to say this about a living sacrifice. He said, do you know the problem about a living sacrifice is that they crawl off the altar all the time. And that's you. You know, you're, you're, you're a living sacrifice, but you're crawling off the altar all the time. I have no wonder and I have very little surrender. What hope do I have? So if so, here's what you need. And here's why I can't stop the sermon now. Paul doesn't simply say, here's what you need to do. You see, that's religion for you. Religion says you must worship God and worship him in this way to be accepted by him. You must pray this way, fast this way, face this way and repeat. That's religion. But don't you see, friends, before all that, Christianity says something far more radical. It says you were made for true worship. Yeah, of course you were made for true worship, but you can't because you're caught up in false worship because you're caught up in false gods. That was Paul's point in Romans 1 and 2. Gods who can't deliver. That's what you're caught up with. So anything that you'd offer up on your own terms, in your own name, are, as the Bible says, filthy rags. Filthy rags, the Bible says. The problem is more dire than you could possibly ever imagine. So how could Paul talk of true worship here? I'll tell you how. It's in that beautiful clause. Between those two commas, in chapter 12, verse 1, look at it in your Bibles with me. It says, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, what? Comma. In view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. In other words, worship for Paul is about recalling, drawing from, yeah, remembering the mercies of God. Not looking inwards to yourself. Not looking at some mystical technique that's out there, but by remembering the mercies of God, recounting the mercies of God. That's the power you need for true worship. The word mercies there literally means the compassion of God. The compassion of God. Do you know where you would use a word like compassion? When would you use a word like compassion? I'll tell you when you use it. You'd use it for a person in deep distress and in deep need. In deep distress and need. And that's the story of all of us. All of us, friends, were dead in our sin. All of us, friends, were dead in our worship until God wrote us into his story. And do you know how he did that? He did that by writing himself into our story.
when Jesus Christ came into the world, at his baptism, the clouds opened up and a, cl- and a dove just came on down and a voice from heaven said, you are my son. With you, I'm well pleased. You see, friends, Jesus Christ was the only acceptable one to God. He was God's very own from all eternity. And yet the Bible also says in a place called Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 5, that when Christ came into the world, he said, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written about me in the scroll of the book. The writer was talking about Jesus. Jesus was in fact saying that about himself. This perfect man, who was the perfect son of God, came to be the sacrifice we could not be. He came to offer up himself, the Bible says, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. You see, when we were the most helpless, when we were the most dead, God showed us his mercy. Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice. Jesus is the only true worshiper and our one true worship. This is my son, God says, whom I love. Listen to him. And in view of all that, Paul says, by that mercy of God, you and I may present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So that when you accept him into your heart by faith, you too can be a holy and acceptable sacrifice because of him. It means, friends, that true worship is and always has to be Jesus-centered. If you want to know whether Cornerstone Humbush Bay is engaged in true worship, God-glorifying worship, let me tell you, it is not in how great the keyboard sounds and ears and costs. It's not in how wonderful our musicians are. It's not even how great our morning teas are. It is entirely in how much you make of Jesus in this place. It is how much you sing of his praises, recount his mercies, how much you share his love and meet others in need through his love. That is how you gauge the quality and quantity of worship in this place. Make no mistake about it, friends. Because only through him, you and I can be an acceptable offering to God. And I'll tell you something else, right, about being a living sacrifice. A sacrifice, you know, in the Old Testament, when he was given to God, it was an absolute delight to him. You know all those places where, you know, the the smoke comes up and it fills God's nostrils and God is pleased with it? that's That's the kind of idea. A sacrifice, when given to God in the appropriate and true way, is an absolute delight to him. And you know what Paul is saying when he says we're a living sacrifice? It says, he says, that you are pleasing to him. You are a sweet aroma because who you are because of Jesus, who you are in Jesus, who was the true sacrifice on your behalf. The surrender you give in terms of your time, in terms of your energy, in terms of your resources, in service, to God and for the good of his people. Let me tell you, Cornerstone Hambush Bay, to the extent that you do this out of a sheer love of Jesus, that is a delight to God like no other. God is pleased. Let me tell you, friends, God is pleased. He is pleased when you offer yourself 
out of your love for Jesus and out of his love for you. He's pleased when you put in that energy, when you load the car, when you pack up the chairs, when you put things away, when you serve our children, when you teach them the words of God, when you give of your tithes and offerings, the collection that we take up each week, when you apportion and you steward the resources that you have for his glory and for his people's good, let me tell you, God is pleased. Not because of your efforts in and of themselves, but that you do this out of an empowerment from God's own spirit because you're in his own son. Don't be discouraged. When you do these things out of a labor for God, when you sweat and when you get disappointed and when you've endured, as I know you've endured a lot, don't be disappointed because you are not doing this out of being accepted by other people, out of your friends, out of your colleagues, not even out of your elders. Do that out of the sheer delight of Jesus, out of worship and wonder for his name. Because he's so great and his power is so beautiful that he, you just cannot help but giving up your all. Can you do that and have that kind of mindset this week and in the weeks to come? Because when you see what Christ has done on your behalf in your helpless state, then you may be roused towards passionate worship with wonder, full of surrender, as we remember the mercies of Jesus. Think upon these things, right? Press them into your heart. Pray them over your children. Pray them over your spouse. Restore the heart of passionate worship. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the wonder that you've given into our lives, the wonder of your revelation that our world, in this world, we are see and experience so many things that we do not know. They're mysteries to us. They're perhaps even tragedies that we've undergone and we do not know all the answers and yet you do. You've loved us. You've rescued us. And because of that, Father, we stand in awe and praise of you. But we thank you, Father, above all, not for the worship we bring to you, but the one true acceptable sacrifice, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, he prepared his body, that he laid it on the altar, that he sacrificed for the sins of this world in presenting the perfect sacrifice to you. And in him, Father God, by faith, we can be a holy and acceptable sacrifice to you, pleasing to you, so that everything we do can be tested and discerned according to your will that we can live in freedom and love and in the knowledge of who you are. Father God, for those of us here who is wrapped up and caught up in false worship, I pray, Father, that you would dismantle and dissolve all the ideals and idols in our hearts. I pray, Father God, instead, that you will turn our hearts and turn our gaze to the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to look to him, find our acceptable worship before you in him, and to let that motivate us in the way that we passionately revere you and engage with you, loving your people and looking forward to the day when, along with countless of other people saved in your name and by your blood, we may worship you for all eternity. For we ask of this in Jesus' name. Amen.